to sustain podcast where we talk about open source sustainability for the long haul. Who are we? Where do we come from? Where are we going? Why am I in this room of emotion? I'm here at State of Open 2023, which is the first conference of its kind in the UK. Conference dedicated towards open source and all that means open data, open information, open science, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we have a podcast room, and I'm here today with Don Foster, who I have now can see in person because I've never had an in-person one before. So it's good. Dawn, it's excellent to have you here. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Thank you for coming on. So tell me about what you are doing here. Do you have a talk? I do have a talk. Post that on. Yes. So I have a talk tomorrow on leading in open source and taking a strategic approach. So the premise behind that talk is that you really do need to Think about your long-term plans and strategies for your open source work if you want them to be successful. And that means getting budget allocated over the long-term. That means being able to justify it to executives so they don't just cut all of your open source efforts. And so it really is kind of about sustaining your open source commitments internally Mm. within your company Mm. over the longer term. Interesting. So what's different about this talk versus the talk that you gave us? I think you've given a similar talk before. I have. I've given variations on this theme in the past. So I did give actually this exact same talk at the LF Member Summit. It wasn't recorded. So only people who happened to be there in person got the pleasure of seeing that talk. So I think this is the first conference I've actually given it at where it'll have a kind of broader audience and be recorded as well. Since you've given it before, is there any chance you can give me the bullet points? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So within this talk, one of the things that I talk about is, again, it's about taking a strategic approach. So it's about being able to take the work that you need to do within open source and being able to tie that back to your organization's business goals. Because that's how you get to do something long-term is if an executive comes to you and says, why do you do that? Why do you do this open source thing? If you describe it to them and anything that even sounds remotely like charity, the chances that you're going to get to continue that are not very good unless you happen to work in an organization that supports that, which most don't. So the way you justify it is you look, what is my organization trying to achieve as a whole? And how do I fit the work that I need to do within open source within that context? So VMware, one of the ways that we justify it is we see open source as the way that we innovate. So we build our products on top of technologies like Kubernetes and other cloud-native technologies. So you can justify the work based on the work that we're doing within our products. So no surprise to anyone, we're going through a bear market right now. People are getting laid off left and right. Google just laid off a ton of really great people, often without a lot of notice, which totally sucks. And we're seeing a hollowing out of Ospos. And as we enter that sort of market, open source is kind of a fair weather idea. It's the kind of thing that floats really well when all everyone has wind in the sails, but when the wind gets cut back a bit, it's really difficult. Now, VMware, it makes sense to me. It's great. Can you tell me more explicitly, if you have a really argumentative manager you're talking to and he's like, no, what's the ROI? How do you answer that in finite amounts? How do you win those conversations? Yeah, you can't win the ROI argument with open source because there just really aren't good ways to justify a specific return on investment. So you're not going to get specific numbers. Got it. But the way you can justify it. So when I worked at Pivotal, I was more directly involved in our Kubernetes contributor strategy. Yes. And the way I justified that was I was like, this is where we're going with this particular product or product line. 
this is what we're going to need out of Kubernetes in yeah. order to be able to achieve this. So for example, you know, we wanted to build a bunch of stuff on top of Kubernetes. That yeah. requires being able to have a better sense for what they, the APIs really do and probably influence the way some of the APIs are written. Yeah. So we had people working in SIG API machinery, for example. On the VMware side, one of the early forays into Kubernetes was around cluster API because yeah. it was all around how do you upgrade clusters and things. So the Kubernetes model early on, just like, just tear everything down and build it back up, which when you're dealing with enterprise customers, that's really not a great solution. That's great well, fine for developers, whatever, but in, in a production environment, you need better, more robust ways of doing things like upgrades and what we call day two operations. Yeah. So VMware was heavily involved in a lot of the work and building a lot of the technologies around yeah. the Lustre API. And we did that because it was something that we needed selfishly. But it wasn't just us needing this, right? It was lots of other companies as well need the same thing. So we could justify it because we needed it, but it was something that benefited the entire community as a whole. And I think too, you need to be a little bit careful about this, right? You know, I talk a lot about being able to justify it and tie it back to business goals and being very specific about what you're doing. But you do also need to give back in other ways, but that's not how you justify it to management. (laughs) Those are more sneaky, right? You know, I'm going back and forth with feedback on a PR and I'm kind of waiting for that to merge. I can do some other stuff. I can work on maybe some documentation around something. I can do some stuff in the community. I can do some other things while I'm also working on this thing that my company needs. So I think you kind of need to do both, but you can't justify it to executives as, yeah, that's good for everybody. Kumbaya, the source is great. You really need to be able to think about how to justify it. Kumbaya, Kubernetes. When I think about open source, I often use these two really fuzzy buckets. And one of them is developers, independents, having a good time, hacking on things, spare time, basements, et cetera, et cetera. And then I think of enterprise corporate models, two major people trying to avoid having to deal with a merger or some sort of infringement of monopoly control, working on an open source project that's independent as a way of ensuring that they're able to continue to control the field. Very different approaches towards open source, very different approaches towards business. I can see that it's very easy from the position of a corporate identity working on large projects like Kubernetes. I don't see how Kubernetes is being something that your average person can just run up and code with. It's very easy to say, listen, this is going to ensure our market advantage. One of my questions is, is it right to call that the same type of community? Or is community like a word that doesn't really work well for those two buckets? Am I missing something in this picture? I think the two sort of blend together in a lot of ways. So I think a lot of people now are paid to do open source as part of their work. Or maybe they're a professional developer who does some of this also on the side because they've got a passion for it. But in some cases, those two people, that independent developer who's doing it for fun and that person who's doing it because they're paid to do it from a corporation are sometimes one and the same. Sometimes they're actually the same person. Also, you know, there's a subset as well of the independent people who get involved in a project because they're also looking for new opportunities or they want to learn a technology or there are loads of motivations for contributing to open source. But in some cases, some of those independent people who are doing it, maybe they're doing it for fun. Maybe they're doing it to learn something. Maybe they're doing it to get a job, regardless of their initial motivation. They may eventually end up working in one of these companies and doing this full time as well. So then they become kind of that corporate developer. So I think the two aren't necessarily separate. And when I tend to think about community, I tend to think about it more holistically, including both of those types of people. Excellent. Thank you so much. 
the problem I struggle with a lot, like is my mapping appropriate of the ecosystem? Now, can you remind me again about your exact role at VMware? So I am director of open source community strategy at VMware. So what that means is I'm responsible for looking strategically across our open source portfolio. So that's both the open source projects that VMware starts on our own and the open source projects that we contribute to. And that takes a couple of different forms. So on the one hand, I actually identify it's the list right now is around 30 to 35 projects that are particularly strategic for VMware. And it's a combination of ones we've started and ones that are owned by other people like foundations or other companies that are important to our products in some way. So I look at these strategic projects. And then my team is also responsible for doing some project health assessments and project health metrics. So on the one hand, for those strategic projects, I have two people who are on my team. One of them's focused on what we call the VMware originated, so the projects that we start. And she does health assessments for those projects. So like it's a detailed look at what the health of the project is. So all of these projects exist in other business units across the company. So we work closely with that business unit and say, this is what we think is happening. This is where we think you can improve. Do you agree with that? Do you not agree with that? What did we miss? And then we do the same thing on the third-party side. So we look at projects like Kubernetes, for example, that's really important to us. And we do these similar strategic assessments. They're different. We ask different questions depending on whether it's our own project or a third-party project. Because we have so many projects, we have dozens of GitHub orgs. We yep. have a whole bunch of repositories within those orgs. Yep. I have some chaos metrics that I run that are more of a scalable approach. Okay. So we run that on about 125 repositories cool. that have enough data to do the kind of metrics that I look at. So generally like more than 60 commits in six months. So when you're talking about tools that you use, you just mentioned chaos is great. Yep. We had Ruth Cheesley in earlier, and she mentions that she uses Monica HQ, Savannah CRM, Maltic, obviously, to figure things out. I'm curious, when you look at this massive amount of projects, how are you ensuring that you are able to have a good overview on a given Tuesday? Do you have like set times in your calendars to check in with every single Slack message? What tools do you use to make this easier for you as a community strategy? Like I said, we have a lot of projects. And so I really do take kind of a scalable approach to that. And so I run a whole bunch of metrics and those are available for people to look at. I run them once a month. I'll admit that I don't necessarily dig into the data every month, but the person on my team who does the BMR originated projects, I think she looks at it a little bit more closely than I do. So Augur is the base of that. So it's a chaos tool. And frankly, I picked it because the front end was not particularly mature and it has a Postgres database on the back end. And I could just write a whole bunch of custom Python code to pull out four metrics that I really cared about that I wanted people to look at. So I think of those and I'm actually turning this into a metrics model for the chaos project. And we're calling it the starter project health metrics model. And so the idea is, you know, here are four metrics to start with. It's not going to get you everything, but it's four things that you can look at to start with to see if you think your projects are healthy or not. And so that's one of the things that I do that can scale. And I use Augur for that. But on the other hand, we do have in some of our business units dedicated community managers who are responsible for individual projects. And they use a variety of different tools. So one of the groups within VMware uses the Grimoire Labs tools from Baturgia. And so those community managers, they dig into those really detailed dashboards and look at every aspect of what their community is doing so that they can then better understand it and do what community managers need to do, which is improve in places maybe that aren't as robust as you you would have liked from a project health standpoint. And then we also have some other groups that are just doing some custom stuff out of the GitHub API, things like that. Awesome. It's really cool to see how 
large functional Osmos work. There's not many of them. And it's always interesting to see, like, it's not just one person. It's like, no, we have teams that do this and tools that do this. And we've managed to operationalize the entire project. And our business units operate relatively independently in a lot of cases. So like I said, you know, we have one business unit, community managers who are using Grimoire Labs. You know, any of the business units can use whatever tools they need to do. And we within OSPO kind of encourage that because I want them to use the tools that are going to work for them. I don't want to pose a tool set and be like, you have to use this because OSPO says you have to use this. So what we do is we act in more of a consultative mentoring kind of role with a lot of the different groups within VMware so that we provide them with advice. We have loads of like guidelines and policies and things like that around compliance. I don't get involved in that so much. But we do act in more of a mentor capacity for a lot of the different groups. Glad you brought up mentoring. So it's very easy for people to begin in open source. There's so many resources out there. And hey, go do doc fixes. Hey, go show up at the community calls. They don't have one, run one. You don't know how to get started, find a mentor. See if you can do that. If there's no mentor, get involved with the diversity initiative. There are ways to do that. And we talked about that at length, like the ecosystem is around. What we don't talk about a lot is graduating from being a beginner person to being a maintainer who's the expert on the niche product and how that helps your career and how it helps you move. Every project has turnover. And that's a natural part of the ecosystem. And every single maintainer also has to move on at some point to another thing. Yeah. Can you tell me about your late stage mentoring or if you think at all about like how engineers are going to move forward in the career from this project to have the soft skills necessary to do the same thing at a new project? Is that something you have to think about in your daily life? It's yeah. a hard question. So sorry. It is a hard question. That's all right. I actually care deeply about this question. Cool. It's not something I have to do in my day-to-day work at VMware. Because most of that sort of work happens out of the business units because they have the products, they put people on different projects depending on what they need. And so they need to be thinking very carefully about that. But it is something that I spend a lot of time thinking about in the broader context of maintainerships. So putting on my, I have many hats, putting on my CNCF Contributor Strategy Technical Advisory Group co-chair hat, this is something that we care deeply about. So I gave a 30-minute talk on this at Fosdem actually, which was geared towards maintainers. And how do you grow your next set of maintainers? Because maintainers, we're in a situation right now, and this isn't just small projects, right? Like Kubernetes is struggling to get enough maintainers and enough contributors in order to sustain the project over the long term. And you look at, there are loads of projects that are effectively by a single person, two people. We had this with OpenSSL around Heartbleed. There are loads of projects that don't have enough maintainers. There's no succession plan if something happens to the maintainer. That was that project that I can't remember what it was, but the maintainer got thrown in jail and nobody had anything. It was like six months. Nothing happened on the project because nobody else had access to it. Wow. And the guy was in jail. I haven't heard of that one. And so these things happen. And you really need to have, as a maintainer... You need to think about how you can grow this next wave of maintainers. So what I talked about in the Bosdap talk were some you know, simple ways to do that. There's some metrics you can look at to decide where to start. Don't try to do everything. You don't need to spend hours and hours on it, but maybe improve some of your onboarding docs as a start. Maybe mentor somebody a little bit, maybe an hour a month, an hour a week. There's some little things that you can do to start growing that next wave of maintainers. This is something I've actually been worried about quite a lot. So my PhD research is on the Linux kernel. And I think a lot about collaboration in the Linux kernel. And I Mm -hmm. think about how old a lot of these people are. A lot of the maintainers are, they're my age, right? They're in their 50s. So we're going to retire pretty soon or stop working or whatever. They've 
gotten a little bit better. They're getting some more people involved in things like the kernel and some younger maintainers, which is desperately needed. But it's just something I worry about for a lot of these big mature projects. It's just aging out. They're not growing enough maintainers behind people. There are a lot of related issues around sustainability of these communities and the maintainerships. And a lot of maintainers are burnt out. They're exhausted. They're frustrated. Maintaining a project is a tough job. It's very demanding. You don't get a lot of credit for it. Yep. It's a hard job. And you need to think about taking care of yourself. Just as a, as a person, you can't work constantly. You need other people to come in and help at some point. But how do you find those people and get them to help when you're so overwhelmed with the day-to-day stuff that you don't feel like you have any time to do that? So you obviously mentioned health metrics like chaos and mentioned mm-hmm. metrics that you do as a company. Can you tell me about how you operationalize the off-giving of trust for maintainers? It's not just mentoring like once a month, but how do you help them figure out that I can't work late on this project? I need to be able to work during nine to five and then put it away. Otherwise, I'll burn out more, mm-hmm. which means I have to tell someone else how to do it and give them the keys. Now, that's a hard conversation to have. I've had that conversation with people. It's <laughs> difficult. So I'm just curious how you do it. And again, these are hard questions. I'm yeah, sorry. it's it's a super hard problem. I admit, I probably don't get involved in that as much on a day-to-day basis, cool. like the handing over of keys to things. But trust and responsibility is something that we build in these projects over periods of months and years. And, you know, sticking around in a project long enough for people to trust you, I think it takes time. But I think also, there's also the concept of moving from project to project. And a lot of these communities, you see more movement project to project, I think, than you used to. In a lot of communities, particularly in the cloud native space, you see people kind of popping in and out of different projects and contributing different things. And I think, too, that some of that trust that you've built in some of these communities, sometimes that can stick around if you've got a few people that are kind of in that community as well. So in some cases, if you've already built trust with some of those people that are in that community, in some cases, you can bring that with you. And so likewise, as a maintainer, if I know somebody from another community that I already trust and have built trust, maybe I can bring some of those people into my community because it's easier to trust someone if you've seen that they've been trustworthy in the past. So how do you find those people and bring them along with you as a maintainer? Love that answer. Thank you so much. This has been great. I would love to talk further on the subject. This is a short podcast. We're running up on time. So what is one thing you're looking forward to either at this conference, State of the Open, or next year, this year for open source? I think one of the things that I'm looking forward to moving forward, so throughout this conference, State of OpenCon, but also in the future, I think it's it's looking more at open data approaches. So one of the things I like about Open UK is it's not just focused on open source, but it's also open hardware, open data. Personally, I have a very deep interest in data and analytics and metrics. And so the other thing that I continue to think more about is how do we bring more kind of data science-based approaches to interpreting some of the metrics that we have and looking at things more from a data-based approach. Love it. Thank you so much. Excellent. I'm looking forward to summer. So thank you so much. Where can people reach you on the internet? I am Geeky Girl Dawn on most things. GitHub, Twitter, Mastodon on Hacky Derm, which is Chris Nova's instance. You can also find me at fastwonderblog.com and the VMware open source blog. Great. Well, again, thank you so much. Have a good time at the conference and thanks for talking. Yeah, thanks for having me. Welcome to Sustain. This is the podcast where we talk about open source sustainability 
what is open source? How do we keep it going? All those sorts of fun stuff. I'm, of course, your host, Richard Litauer. I'm here at State of the Open, State of Open 2023, the first State of Open conference here in the UK in London. And I'm sitting across from Andrew Nesbitt. If you don't mind, I'd like to hear about the history of how you met Ben Nichols and libraries.io started. So there's a project that I started, who knows what year, but a good while ago called 24 pull requests. This was inspired by kind of Christmas and a festive season of giving. I working in a regular job on proprietary software. I was like, oh, like I'm building on top of a lot of open source. I'd really like to give back to the maintainers of these open source projects. I haven't got a lot of money because I live in London. I spend all my money on rent, but I can give back with some of my time by contributing to their open source projects. And being a software developer, I thought maybe I can make a platform that encourages lots of people to do this and kind of automate a whole load of pieces out of that kind of exploded very quickly and became quite a big project, hundreds of contributors, because of course, the first thing you want to do when you start doing 24 pull requests is contribute to the 24 pull request code base being open source, not contributing to any other open source software. And from there, I got invited to speak at a lightning, it's an Ignite evening in Bath, where both Ben and I were living, but I didn't know Ben at the time. And he was doing the kind of organizing of that event. So I stood up and I did this five minute, crazy fast lightning talk about this project and how all of the open source software that had kind of contributed to making it in five minutes and blew lots of people's minds because it was not about software that evening. It was just about community projects. Cool. But Ben was like, well, this is great. So 24 Progress kind of got me a job at GitHub. They noticed that I was helping people discover open source projects that they could contribute to. A number of different tools built into 24 Progress to kind of go and match projects with people. Yeah. As well as trying to avoid suggesting projects that weren't good to contribute to. Just to be clear, 24 pull requests, the name comes from the advent calendars. The idea was you do like December 1st, you do once or second, all the way up to Christmas. Yeah, the idea, and it's a bit of a pipe dream for a lot of people that you would send one pull request every single day until Christmas. And this was way before Hacktoberfest started. Hacktoberfest was directly inspired by 24 pull requests. DigitalOcean sponsored 24 pull requests one year and then set Hacktoberfest up the next year cool. and didn't continue to sponsor 24 ProQuest. Very sad. That's how it is. But it's still available online. It's still on GitHub. You can look at it. It's still going. Yeah. Cool. So this project doesn't look like it would accept any contributions. Basically trying to stop people from putting all that work in and then realizing, oh, this pull request is never getting merged because yeah. it's depressing, but it's also just a big waste of time if you're actually going to contribute. So I wanted engineering effort to be more efficient and be able to move everything faster by everyone doing a bit more or less rework or wasted effort. Those tools then became very useful in broader kind of open source discovery. So not just open source projects that you would contribute to, but also projects that you would want to use. So you're able to go like, okay, well, this package has got lots of open issues or hasn't had any commits to its main branch in a long time, doesn't appear to be very responsive. And 24 progress kind of very basic 
set metrics, not yeah. complicated. Yeah. What I then did with libraries I always go, okay, well, I can index all the packages of every package manager and do the same kind of thing. That's I right. can look at all these kinds of metrics. But what got really interesting is when you go, okay, I've got a list of packages, cool. They say like, oh, I've got this many stars. As you know, stars aren't necessarily a good metric of if a project is good, it's just a metric of if the project has attention and lots of people look at it, you could probably graph the number of page views on a given repository page against the number of stars it's got, and it'd be very linear. So if you can send a lot of traffic there, then you can get a lot of likes, right? That doesn't imply the software works at all or is fit for purpose for whatever you're trying to do. So you need a better metric. What's a better metric than that? Counts is something that people will look towards, especially if they're, say, from the JavaScript community, because NPM puts graphs yep. on every page and you're like, oh, cool. But that doesn't work for many other communities. They don't have those kinds of metrics. They don't make those metrics available. Java and Maven yep. don't have that either. Some of them do though. So you can use it where it's available. The metric that I found really interesting, it kind of accidentally stumbled over it, is how many projects, and that's how many open source repositories, not just things published on package managers, but applications and shell scripts and command line tools, all kinds of things that have been built and yep. just published on GitHub, GitLab, Bitbucket. They declare dependencies on packages. So you can pull those out of your package JSON or your gem file or any of these different kinds of manifest files. That then, if you aggregate that data, a massive amount of data, if you imagine 30 million open source repositories, an average of like 100 dependencies per project, then that's a lot of rows in the database. But it gives you some really interesting usage metrics that also kind of implies how much it might be used within closed source as well, without necessarily knowing that. It also gives you some really interesting implications. If someone depends on a project, it implies that project is dependable. Like it's kind of built into the name. It's really cool. But it was well documented enough that the person was able to add it as a dependency. Somewhere else. It was functional enough yeah. that they didn't then remove it. And it probably had en masse the correct license information that it didn't get ripped out by all of the scanning tools that say this license says you agree to give Andrew your first puppy. Uh, <laughs> So Andrew has four dogs. That's a meaningful statement. <laughs> so there's all this kind of stuff that's implied just by one project declaring another project as a dependency that produces kind of like PageRank with Google back when Google first got started. You kind of can then go, oh, this transitive dependency tree brings a lot of credentials along with each hop of each dependency on another dependency. So you'd find projects that are like, wow, this thing is downloaded 90 million times a month on NPM. It's got like 100,000 open source projects relying on it. Things like Minimist by Substack, which is like a parsing argument that's used yeah. every single other. And then you go to the repo and it's got 25 stars. So yeah. It's never going to show up. A lot of people would land on that page and be like, oh, 25 stars? This means nothing. Yeah. What we did was produce different kinds of output off that same data, essentially just like pivot tables of open source metadata. And that is what enabled us to raise more funding to work 
more on libraries out. Thank you so much. That's a really wonderful explanation. I have a really small question that just won't get out of my head. Did you ever look at projects which are popular or projects which are infrastructure level, which may be used in closed source, but which have licenses that discriminate against closed source usage? Oh, interesting. So yes, I did look at that. I think probably the only output of that was tweets that I had done. Fascinating. Thank you so much. This is really awesome. So let's move forward a bit. So Libraries.io became its own thing. You could look at it, you can use it. Pilot eventually bought Libraries.io. We're not going to talk about that. They still have it. Now you and Ben are working on a new project called Ecosystems. You may not be ready to announce it too much, but there's already a website up. So I feel like we can talk about it a bit. Tell me the difference between Libraries.ms. So Ecosystems is, if I could start over on Libraries.io, with a slightly different set of use cases in mind. Libraries.io was always set up initially as a discovery tool. So it was like, cool. I want to find a particular library to do a particular thing, but essentially it comes down to being a search tool or like, oh, I've landed on this page. I can get some more information about this project at a glance rather than having to go and click around and like, oh, let me go see what's inside this file that you do on every single Python project you go to look at. Like, yeah. So it would just try and pave all of those cow paths and make it really easy for you. Came out with a rank essentially to go like, oh, well, this looks like a reasonable project within this ecosystem. That's the other thing it tried to do was try and normalize across different ecosystems. But when open source projects, so it's all open source, when anyone else tried to contribute to it, they realized this project is gigantic. Yeah. Not only is the huge data behind it and the database was enormous, but the code base was also one single large Rails app. What that meant was if they only wanted a piece of it, they couldn't stand that piece up without doing everything else. There's a lot of setup. You couldn't fix the engine without downloading the entire car. Exactly, yeah. So ecosystems is split up into individual pieces that then work together. And so there's a piece that focuses on package metadata. There's a piece that focuses on repository metadata. There's a tool that just indexes events out of GitHub and has 6 billion events from 2015, I think. And that then is used to trigger other events in other systems to be like, oh, there was a commit to this repository. Then the repository service is like, oh, cool. Let me go mine the metadata out of that. Also, this repository is published on these packages. So it goes and tells the packages service, oh, you need to go check, see if there's a new version because we just saw a new tag, whatever, right? But they're split up into individual pieces. So it's easy if you just want to work on package mess data and do some research there. You can download the open data for just the packages service, which is small compared to the 6 billion events in the timeline service. It's maybe like 6 gigs, I think, the database. So that's pretty reasonable. You can stand that up. You can do work on that and you can export the data out of that. So... This was much easier to expand it and to make it have support for even more things. So ecosystems is already bigger than libraries was and is growing all the time, as well as adding in support for more things. I've just recently added in support for indexing Docker containers and GitHub Actions. So you can then start to see, oh, this repo, it has a Docker file in it, it has GitHub Actions, which depend on Docker files as well. And then 
what's contained inside this Docker file? Well, there's potentially other modules from other ecosystems. So you get a really interesting chain of the whole stack, which then, again, you can come back and say, right, well, let's mine this data and find some interesting things. So that's the bit that I've not got to yet with ecosystems. I've built up all of the kind of infrastructure and data in place. The next step is to then start asking questions of that data and say, okay, show me what you got. So it's safe to call ecosystems libraries.io too. It's pretty close. Yeah, yeah. It's a GPL license because it uses shared code with libraries. They use the same parser for the dependency information, although I've got a fork of the parser, which adds support for more platforms. But where libraries.io has been left or has, has different pieces removed from it, where you can't get that data anymore, ecosystems tries hard to be really open and also designed to be API first rather than a web application first for people to browse and search on. It's like, this is really designed for you to pull data out of and build systems on top of. And the cool thing about it is that each ecosystem has the same API. Build a tool on top of NPM and be like, okay, cool. Now I'll try and do it on top of PyPI. Oh, the data is totally different shape. I'm going to have to redevelop my whole system to make it work for both. But you've already done that. And I've already done that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's like enables people, again, to kind of multiply their effort and be more efficient because they can build a tool for a community and it works for every community. So listeners for Sustain generally include maintainers and community organizers for large projects and people who work at open source program offices or somewhat affiliated also shaped things. If I was working for a large project and I was looking to improve or understand the stack of my dependencies, like what are the use cases of ecosystems for me as a maintainer or community manager? Understanding your dependencies that you have in your applications is one use case, but that is not the most interesting use case. What's the most interesting use case? So the most interesting use case is instead of going down your dependency tree, all of the projects that use your stuff, that is much, much harder data to get. So it's quite easy to go to PyPI, pull down all the packages and say, okay, well, here are all the packages and I can pass my requirements.txt and I've got a list of the packages I use, right? If you want to work out who depends upon your projects, you need to find every requirements.txt on GitHub, on GitLab, on Bitbucket, on every other third-party hosted GitLab instance. That's brutal. Don't do that. Just Don't do that because I've already done it. It's a lot of work to be able to reproduce that data. And this data is totally free and available and easy to query. That's the other thing. My dependencies table right now is 60 billion rows. It's humongous. There is one index that's very good at making it so you can say, for my package, show me everything that depends on it. Yeah. If you want to do that yourself, you spend a lot of time and then you will not want to maintain it either on an ongoing basis. Interesting mining in finding not only the projects that individually use your stuff, But you could then start to group that out and go, here are organizations that are actively using my projects a lot. They're really good people to reach out to then and say like, okay, well, you look like you're really depending on my projects. So ecosystems has maintainer data for 
for pretty much every ecosystem, like any that make it available. So you could then aggregate all of the people that use your projects together and go, oh, okay, these are the people I need to reach out to before I make a breaking change. If I'm going to publish a breaking change, these five people, their packages are super popular and they depend on mine. They're not going to upgrade if I break something and make it hard work for them. So I can reach out to them to make it easier to ensure that everyone is upgrading. Or you can prove there's going to be a security patch. You actually can now discover all of the stakeholders in your project without having to have them reach out to you directly, which is really cool. If you want to try and do that using the GitHub dependency data, for one, you've got to be on the right ecosystem. GitHub only supports a subset of ecosystems. And if you actually try and pull that data out, you're going to go mad because it's kind of really spotty. It's not indexed in a way that makes it easy to properly collect. The only thing ecosystem doesn't do is it doesn't contain any data about proprietary projects. Right? You're going to have to do that yourself or use a project like SCARF that has that kind of data. Ecosystems is all open. There's no like closed off bits to it. Amazing. This is super cool. This is super fun. Richard and Scarf, I think we've had Abby Press on the podcast as well. He's great. Excellent person. Excellent podcast. Do go check that out. Andrew, this has been really fun. We're going to have to have you on for a full episode at some point if you want. I know you are the person behind the tech stack. Ben Jam was the hide behind the product. We're really grateful to Schmidt for helping to fund this. I think of other funders as well. But for now, we do have to wrap it up. Where can people find you on the web if they have questions? Oh, good question. I guess the easiest place to find me is GitHub where my username is Andrew. Sweet. Andrew, this has been great. Going to have to have you on again. Thank you so much for joining us. For all you listeners of Sustain, I hope you have enjoyed this podcast. As always, you can find this podcast at podcast.sustainoss.org. You can also check out the discourse at discourse.sustainoss.org to talk about all sorts of things. Sustain and this podcast especially, we'll have a thread for it up soon. We are on Twitter. We are on Mastodon. We are around. You can find us where podcasts are made. Please like this podcast in your app of choice if you can. And you can always email me at podcast at sustainoss.org and that'll go to all the posts and me. If you have any comments, thoughts, suggestions, please let me know. Thank you so much and good day.